Welcome to the See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, with my co-host here, David Ludlum. And we are here today with Western Colorado Community College Associate Technical Professor of Culinary Arts, Wayne Smith. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here with us. What is culinary arts? Is it really an art? Oh, man, that's a great place (laughs) to start, isn't it? Um, Because I have this discussion with my students sometimes about... Uh, What is art and is culinary art art? Is food, can food be art? Um, And I think the distinction is um, there's the craftsmanship of it and then there's the art side. And and, uh, the way I heard it described once that I really like is uh, artists can do things that are provocative and certainly you can do that with food. Um, But art can go to places that are offensive um, and to get a reaction from people, to get them to feel something. Um, it's very difficult to do food that's offensive and, and consider yourself successful, right? If people don't like it, then you're not really successful. So there's some artistic elements to it, but I think the foundation and most of it really is culinary craft. I don't know. I feel like, isn't there this scene where you try to concoct like the craziest food combination you can possibly have, you know, like... I don't, I don't know, like some sea urchin with some crazy spices and some wild things to try and people aren't probably maybe going to like it, but it's just the idea. Yeah. But even in that case, usually for it to work, you have to have some understanding of what goes together and you have to know traditionally how sea urchin is served and how to prepare a sea urchin. So you still have the craftsmanship that goes into it. Um, And then maybe there are creative elements in your little twist you put on it um, to, to make it unique. Um, but you're always building on what's there. And it is really, really difficult in food to do something new. Um, you know, most things have been tried. Somebody's done it before. Somebody's made those flavor combinations. Um, Over 10,000 years, we've kind of done it all. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I would encourage students to first make the traditional dish and find out why we've been making that for a thousand years. Uh, before you decide you're going to do the, your creative take on Coco Vaughn, <laughs> go ahead and make Coco Vaughn and find out what it's all about. As a culinary artist, sometimes you think about how you know people will watch cable news and they're a political expert, or they'll you know watch read an article and all of a sudden they're an expert on healthcare. Mm-hmm. Do you find people all the time that because they're hobbyists or they do cooking at home that they maybe underestimate how much work and time and energy and effort goes into someone like yourself who has honed their art and can teach it and um, can train people to go out into the world and prepare food for people that they really love. Maybe until they try it. I think once <laughs> once they get into it, and people people have that fear factor that they don't get into it. I would say one difference is too is um, everybody eats, so really everyone is a food expert uh, to some degree. They know what they like, um, and they may not be able to prepare everything they like, but um, they they do have their opinion. They have their tastes. Um, and, and we need to respect that. And so that's part of what we do, um, on the hospitality side of it. It's really taking care of people. Why do you think, I mean, I know everybody eats, everybody enjoys it. There's so many different parts to it. You know, you get a, obviously eat something great, but then there's that social aspect to it. But why, why are we obsessed with these cooking shows? You know, like the food network or the great British, what is it? Great, but it, great, great British baking show. Right. Um, 
That's a hard one for me to answer because I'm not obsessed with them <laughs> so much. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a busman's holiday for me to go home and watch uh, cooking shows on TV. Um, but I, I think maybe it's that it's relatable. Um, and yet it's also, it seems fantastical at the same time. Um, uh, you know, there's a little bit of this, oh, I could do that. Um, kind of aspect to it. And then you see some of these shows where people attempt to do it and, and just, you know, fail tremendously. (laughs) We Um, do like seeing people fail, don't we? Maybe that's it. (laughs) Yeah. I think that might be part of it too. Do you think like, uh, like you think about the disciplines that are very empirical, like physics, Mm -hmm. um, there's pretty definitive answers to things outside like theoretical physics, whatever, but Within culinary arts, I assume at some level, you have to like hold the students accountable to a cert- certain baseline of rules or protocols or things you do or don't do, even though you call it an art. Is that right? Oh, or is absolutely. Tr- There's uh, first and foremost, um, it has to be safe to eat. So there are, there are hard rules there, temperatures we th- cook things to, temperatures we store food at, how long we um, keep things around before we throw them out. Um, so there are those types of hard and fast rules um, that, that um, more important than it tasting good is that it be safe to eat. And we start there, um, but we can do better than just be safe to eat. Uh, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned physics because we have our own empirical rules. Cooking is physics, cooking is chemistry. Um, and, and I really enjoy that aspect of it and understanding what's going on uh, in, in food is about transformation. Um, we take uh, asparagus, this stuff that grows by the ditch and really is kind of grassy and, and uh, tough, uh, especially towards the base. Uh, but we can take that tough asparagus and we can cook it down and we can make the flavor sweeter. And then we puree it and we, we uh, strain it and we thicken that liquid, and we add cream to it, and we've transformed the texture of asparagus to this cream soup, but retain the flavor. And, and so there's this transformational, and where you talk about food being art, very often it's about that transformation, the unexpected uh, that can happen with food. What makes a great chef? Caring about people, caring about the food, um, you know, putting their heart and soul and their guts into it. Um, uh, but you have to care about the people that you're feeding, and you also have to care about the people that really do the work for you. Um, many, many chefs don't have time to cook. They have to rely on their crew to do that. And their crew can't do their best work if the chef doesn't care about them. Well, I was at a, recently at a, a diner with a, like a really good friend, and it was not, maybe not what you'd think of as a, a high-end place. But you could tell that the food was prepared with a lot of care and was served with a lot of care and um, grace or whatever you'd call it. And it, you could feel that and, it, and you, you could taste that in some weird kind of way, even though it was just a diner. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's like, um, how do you, a lot of times people think culinary arts is you can only get artistic food if you go down to Lodo in downtown Denver. But I felt like the chicken fried steak order at that diner was prepared with as much thought or it tasted like it and it felt like it when it was served to me. Is there something, can food be artistic even if it's fast or from a diner? I don't know if it's artistic, but it, I think it can speak to us um, and it can really um, uh, help us connect um, and, and help us kind of transcend and that meal becomes something more than just eating. And it doesn't have to be fancy food to do that. Um, the, very, the very humble dishes made with care um, 
uh, a, you know, a chicken fried steak, like you mentioned, a simple plate of, of beans and homemade flour tortillas can be absolutely delicious and mind blowing. I think we don't give nearly enough respect to fried chicken. And the reason I say we don't give enough respect is because we don't make it from scratch. We're buying pre-battered frozen chicken. I'm talking about restaurants or buying like this free pre-made garbage, you know, put it in the deep fryer for 12 minutes and serve it up. And it's, it's got no flavor and got no character and no love. So that's, I think where, you know, if you're, if you care, then your food's going to be good. It doesn't matter what it is. You spoke a little bit about, you know, you have to know the basics and how to, to cook a dish and, and the tra- in the traditional way. Do you guys go over the history of spices in your classes and where they came from and their origins and kind of what makes Italian food Italian food? Yeah, there's one class in particular that we have that is international cuisine. And I should say we're going to add a class uh, in the next academic year that is regional American cuisine. And we'll do the same thing with American cuisine that we're doing internationally. But we, so in that class, uh, it's definitely about the dishes and the recipes, but it's, it's as much about um, the, in, the ingredients and the source of the ingredients and where they came from and why did they end up in this place and why do they cook what they do and why do they cook the way they do and what's that have to do with economics and the, what they had available to cook with, whether it's a stone hearth or cooking in a wok because it doesn't take a whole lot of uh, heat energy and you can cook foods quickly. Um, a lot of our cooking methods come out of poverty. You know, beans and rice or a starch, you know, that combination is a staple all over the world. Um, and so, um, you know, understanding that and, and what goes into the food, I think, is really important. And what students, I don't tell them about that class and they find out once they're in it, is it's really a reading class. That they have a lot of reading assignments and research to do and <laughs> papers like, to write. We're not cooking, we're just reading. Oh, they cook too, but but the cooking is, you know... Uh, you know, four hours of class a week and, and the reading and writing is eight hours a week. So, um, you know, there's, they've got to do the homework to really understand that food and get, get at it at a deeper level. And we're going to do the same thing for American food next year. You said something interesting about food practices coming out of poverty. Mm-hmm. And I imagine before that, maybe out of necessity, like uh, if you hold this mammoth over the fire and cook the meat, you don't die when you exactly. eat it. Exactly. And there's utility in that. Mm-hmm. Do we still have that kind of utility? We just don't see it the same way. And Or do you talk about these kinds of things with your students about why we cook food and why it matters and and how that's evolved? Or is that is that too esoteric for the classes that you're teaching right now? Maybe sometimes. I mean, I... I I agree that we, I think sometimes we've, we're so far from that now that we've lost it and, and, uh, but we're still evolving. We're just, we're at a different place, you know? Um, I guess I would liken it to taking a, uh, a, a general chemistry class and you're just kind of, here's, here's the rules. Here's, here's the laws that were laid out, you know, and, you, and it's just taken for granted, but at some point somebody had to figure all that stuff out, you know, now we're able to move on to the next step. Um, and so I guess it's a little bit the same way that, that um, um, uh, Nixtamal would be a good example in, in um, Mexico in the indigenous cuisines there where at some point they figured out that stirring in ash from the fire with the, the dried corn and soaking it in water would help to release the hulls. And actually, they probably didn't know on this on a, a level they could, um, uh, you know, elucidate, but that, that it made the the, the nutrition more available to your body as well. But they did figure out that this made better corn and they were healthier doing it. Um, 
you know, so it, it is kind of amazing how it develops. I think it's mysterious. You said we moved on to the next, you know, phase, I guess you would say, um, is, is that sustainable farming, sustainable agriculture? What, where are we at now? Oh boy. That's really, I think that's a rerun. <laughs> you know, we were there a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're just figuring out that, uh, oh wait, maybe, uh, you know, all these, uh, you know, the, the chemicals and the extraction and depletion of the land, maybe that wasn't the way to go. You know, the, the promise of uh, better living through chemistry hasn't always played out. Um, and I, I think it can. I, I, it's not that I don't believe in chemistry or some of the, the processes we can do and what we can achieve. It's just we got ahead of ourselves and we didn't, and maybe it's human nature, we didn't think about um, the consequences, what could happen with what we're doing. Um, and then, and then, 20, 30, 50 years later, we find out, uh, uh-oh, we've got, uh, uh, you know, dead areas in the ocean that don't have any oxygen from all the chemicals that have run in and, you know, things like that. So now we're, now we're kind of going, oh, let's go, let's go back a little bit. Um, uh, so the next steps from there, I don't know. I don't know, you know, where, where we'll go. Um, gosh, one thing I'd like to, not really cooking, but gosh, get rid of plastic. And, and, you know, we use, we consume huge amounts of plastic in our industry, and we've got to find a better way. Yeah. Do you have any any moments in your class, you know, where uh, you guys do discuss, you know, how to make the world a better place with your everyday, you know, your everyday life, you know, whether you're a chef or waitstaff or, you know, somewhere in the restaurant industry? Yes. We have a class that's called Introduction to Sustainable Cuisine. And in that class, students um, learn how to plant and grow food. Uh, we have raised bed gardens, um, and through the winter, we turn them into hoop houses, and so they're covered. Um, and they maintain uh, where we're at here. We don't get enough sunlight in the winter for things to grow, but for many things, it's enough to kind of sustain and stay alive. They're almost in kind of a s- suspended animation, if you will. So spinach and things will just kind of sit there. And then once the sun comes out a little longer, longer days, it starts growing again. Um, so they're they're learning all that, and they get... Um, pardon the pun, but they get in the weeds on on like nutrition and stuff. They'll they'll do experiments with how far away should a grow light be from the plant to get maximum nutrition out of it. Uh, do you get better flavor and nutrition out of spinach when you grow it with compost or with a compost tea? Um, and so they're really kind of looking at all the aspects. Now, a lot of them will they go do gardens in their restaurants? No, but they're they're going to learn the importance of doing things the right way and start to learn how to communicate with farmers in their local area. Um, uh, to get the best products possible for their restaurants and for the people that eat there. Going uh, going back to the kitchen. So like uh, I am decent at gardening and I have a pretty good one. Um, and I notice like when I eat the vegetables that I grow, they taste better mm-hmm. or everybody's experienced the phenomenon of where if somebody else prepares a meal for you, it tastes better than if you prepared the same meal for yourself. What is that all about? Um, appreciation, I guess. It's a psychological um, thing. I think that... it is a psychological thing. Although I think the, the, there is some empirical data on the, the differences in gardening uh, and actual, you can, you can do analysis on the plant material, whether it's a carrot or whatever, and see that there is more nutrient present in that. And so it's going to taste better. Okay. Um, so there, there's a difference when you're, um, you know, you're kind of doing your own composting and returning that to the soil and regeneration and, and perhaps crop rotations and things, you know, nitrogen fixing uh, that helps to um, 
keep the soil healthy um, and, you know, keeping all the little critters in there that keep everything going. Uh, and that's, that makes a better tasting vegetable. As far as eating other people's food uh, and tasting better, I think it's just, uh, I don't know, the, the, like the relief that you didn't have to do it. <laughs> People say they're always afraid to cook for me, but I am the easiest person to cook for. Um, I love, I love being like, fed. Like they're intimidated because you're the chef yeah, and they're the late right. person. And, oh, and okay. uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to sit there and critique your meal. That's <laughs> how rude. Um, so, um, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's good to know. If I ever cook for you, I'll know that you're not going to Oh, no. You know, scream at me or anything horrible. No, no, no. <laughs> um, what you, we, of course, most of our listeners have eaten out. We know, you know, this whole farm to table movement that that is happening and already happened, and it's here. Is that is that part of what David is also talking about? About you know, the tomato in your own backyard tastes better than the one shipped from you from wherever. Sure. And, and another part of that is that, um, the tomato that was shipped from wherever was picked green and the flavor development stopped when it was picked and it can change color, but it's not really going to change flavor much from the point it was picked. Whereas if you grew it yourself, um, I mean, you can, you can pick a tomato and, and, you know, I don't know about you, David, I'm not too concerned about dirt or whatever. So I'll just eat it right there in the garden warm <laughs> from the sunshine. And it's yeah. the most fabulous tomato you could ever eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but the closer, you know, the riper it got before you eat it, the better. Um, so I think that's part of it too. And that's what we're discovering is uh, that's the big difference in buying local on a personal level. I mean, there's all these kind of saintly reasons to do it, that you're supporting local agriculture and, you know, um, you know, sustaining the, in, the community and the environment and all that. But the bottom line is it just tastes better because it's riper. Yeah. I like you said, appreciation, community, um, and the taste, because I, that stuff seems to move me a lot. Um, and I, I enjoy the process of going to a local farmer's market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, all the sort of empirical evidence and what net energy gain or loss and social justice and how food distribution is so complicated. But one thing I really can wrap my hands around is it does fe- taste better to get a Palisade peach than it does to buy a Georgia peach in the grocery store that, like you said, was picked green. Yeah. And, and that's something that could unite everyone, it seems like. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes where we lose the message. We get, we get wrapped up in the, the activism side of it. And it's just like, just eat this because it, it tastes better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you can go talk to a local farmer who grew it yeah. with, with the appreciation part of yeah. it that you talked about. At the same time, I get frustrated with, um, uh, sometimes it gets so into these heirloom, this and that, that it becomes a, um, you know, five, six, $7 a pound tomato. And that's not accessible to a lot of people. And that's not right. Part of what it has to be is that, everybody should be able to enjoy this. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm for that reason, I'm okay with, uh, uh, hybrid tomatoes and whatever, you know, however, however we got it here, um, in, in the most efficient way and, and that it's affordable for people. I'm all for it. It does make you wonder if, if people who maybe sometimes were opposed to those have seen the true scale of poverty. And if you walk that out to its logical conclusion, but that's a, different podcasts for a different day, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to switch gears here um, because I, I'm i thinking social media right now. I follow a lot of food accounts and it's always beautiful and bright and everything looks so perfect. Is there, have you seen 
that change within your classroom of kind of not only like it has to taste good, but it has to look really pretty also? Yes. Uh, yeah, there's definitely concern for that. Um, it's hard for students um, because it takes some practice to really learn how to construct a plate. Um, and it's as much work as learning how to cook. Um, and so, you know, it's, and it, it, it's point A, B, C, D. It's like it starts with where you put the first thing on the plate, you know. And so just kind of learning how to do that. But definitely, yeah, there's um, uh, a lot of interest in that and, and how it looks and, and students taking pictures of all the food, not just what they made, but what everybody else in class made, too. Um, which I think is really cool. Uh, I wish I'd had that when I was starting out because um, all I've got is a, 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 a greasy notebook that I <laughs> would write my recipes in, you know, and I'm not much of an artist, so I couldn't really draw a picture of it. And um, so, you know, a lot of what I've done is lost. <laughs> where, where did you start out? I started uh, cooking in Durango. Um, my Dad was Air Force, and when he got out, we moved to Durango. Um, um, I had family in Cortez, and we did not move there. But um, So I ended up working at a resort um, uh, outside of Durango and um, washing dishes for years, and then just kind of migrated into cooking. It, I didn't have a plan. Yeah. It all happened by accident, and I've just been very fortunate. So you went from dishwashing to line prep cook, line cook, and worked your way all the way up to kind of yeah, to, to chef. Yeah, so I was there all through high school, about three years. I washed dishes. I'd do, you know, two eight-hour shifts on the weekend and several nights a week, um, 40 hours a week all summer. Um, you know, so I an early culture of, of you work for a living um, that I think to some degree we've lost um, today, but that just kind of turned into at one point, well, I'm done with this. I need to find something else to do. And I kind of did some odd jobs here and there. And then I kind of got sucked back in by an old employer there, went back to the same place and I'll help you out for a couple of weeks. I was there five years. And, <laughs> and that's kind of where I started moving up from dishwashing into cooking different positions. Does that help you in the classroom to, for your students to know that you yourself have been through all phases of the, of the business and that you you're now a chef, but you once washed dishes and that there's a, there's a paying your dues process that makes you a better chef or something like that. Is that part of how you teach and do your students react to that well? Or I don't know how aware they are of that and I don't know how much they would care, but I think they do see it um, in the way I run class and the way I relate to them. Um, and I try to be pretty upfront with them that um, you're not a chef when you graduate from here, not by a mile. Um, you've got to go out there. You've got to make that chicken fried steak a thousand times to really learn how a chicken fried steak's made. But you can make it with a pres- or with like, love, love, with yeah. love. With, and you can care, make it with love, yeah. but you're not going to do it very well for a while. Yeah, it, it's love and technique. So, so you got to have both. So you you got to go out there and pay your dues, and you got to really learn. Um, I caution them not to take a job for the the position title so much as the experience they can get from it. And. The culinary arts program at Western Colorado Community College has been around for 20-something years, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. And you've been there from, I mean, from the beginning. From the start, yeah. And yep. I'm sure you've seen so many students go out into the world and, you know, whether it's working their way up or just thriving and starting their own restaurant or business. Can you kind of talk about some of those students that have gone through your program and where they are today? Yeah. Um, you know, from, from the early days, actually some of my earliest students were pretty experienced. 
um, almost had almost the experience in the resume I did, but they were finding they couldn't get that next job. And so they th- felt like they needed the degree and they were able to do it from that point. Um, we had one um, probably about 10 years ago who now uh, owns two restaurants in Beaver Creek. He came from that area um, and he's been able, he started first a sushi restaurant um, and then he started a, um, I think it's a Brazilian steakhouse um, there as well. So he's done very well. We've had a lot of students start their own companies from, uh, there's the cheesecake in a jar and, and he is an alumni of the program, food trucks, um, you know, and so, and then, and then really kind of not so much the kitchen too. Uh, we have a student here in town or a graduate who sells wine. Uh, we have another one who did um, sanitation chemical sales for a while. So they, they find whatever their path is. You know, there's a lot. One of the things I tell my students too is keep yourself open to the possibilities. You may have a plan. I never did. <laughs> but if you keep yourself open to what comes up, then there's going to be a lot more out there for you than if you just have this kind of, this is my path and, and you miss all the things that were possible. Some good advice right there. <laughs> um, well, we're unfortunately running out of time, but I do want to kind of put you on the spot and ask you what your favorite dish is to make. Mm. Boy, I make so many different things. Um, probably um, a couple. One is uh, chili rellenos, um, which uh, I just really enjoy eating. And I think it's, um, I still haven't mastered it. It's a com- very difficult dish to really, really make well. The egg batter has to be perfect or it's just going to soak up all the oil in the pan. Mm. Um, so uh, it's it's touchy, but it's it's so good. I think it's just kind of, it's one of those, it's like really kind of simple elements, but when it comes together, it, it's so far beyond um, what those ingredients are. And eggs benedict, which... Oh, it's my favorite. Sunday brunch gets a <laughs> lot of uh, bum rap from chefs, you know, it's mm-hmm. like looked down on, but I think really they like it. But yeah, that's that's just such a tasty dish, and just to me, it's always about like you you don't eat eggs Benedict, you know, in your pickup truck on the way to work. It's like I got nothing going on, man. This is like <laughs> yeah, <good laughs> eggs Benedict and a glass of champagne, and I got nothing else to accomplish today. Oh, so that sounds ideal. It's a nice mindset to be in. Well, thanks for being with us, and I want to tell you that when we were talking about having you on the show and. I'd uh, ask you about frog legs and you yeah. recommended it. I actually yeah. went out and tried them. They Excellent. Were, they were good. So good. I appreciate the recommendation and appreciate yeah. you being on the show with us today. Uh, it was fun being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm your co-host, Kelsey Coleman, here with David Ludlum. Thanks for joining the show, Wayne. Thank you. <laughs>